I think you're really gonna like this episode of STEM. Insider tips for greenhouse pros. I'm Bill Calkins and Ball Seed recently hosted a meeting of our supplier partners and rooting stations that featured speakers addressing shared production challenges and offering many technical and cultural strategies. One of the top rated speakers coming out of our post-event survey work was today's guest. I asked him to join us on STEM to go through some of the concepts he presented at the meeting. I'm excited to be joined this time by Darwin Perennial's Carl Botchke, who's going to take us through some of the new ways to better produce some of the latest and greatest perennial genetics. But he's not going to talk about the easy ones. Instead, Carl will address some of the more challenging crops and also new crops that require new cultural and technical regimes. I call them the perennial problem children. And like a good guidance counselor, Carl will treat each one as an individual and create a custom plan to maximize their potential and achieve the results you want, the best crop you can produce. But since I have Carl on the hook for 40 minutes, I'm also going to ask him plenty of questions about the current market for perennials, what he's seeing and hearing in his travels, and thoughts and predictions for the future. Carl has tons of industry knowledge and experience, and I'm really happy to have this chance to pick his brain for a bit. But first, Connect Four, where we take a look at four messages lining up to support one key industry topic. And once again, we're looking at team building. This is becoming one of my favorite Connect Four topics. I recently read an article in Inc. Magazine Online that I feel is relevant and necessary for us all to consider a few times throughout the year. Keeping the team motivated. This article listed many strategies, but for this episode, I'll pull out four. Here come four ways to keep employees motivated, besides money. First, provide supportive leadership. Trust is the number one factor. Then, listening and being a good role model. Hold yourself to a high standard and be accountable. Also, believe in your employees. Assuming that they're skilled and dedicated until proven wrong is a great way to motivate. Next, empower and value them as individuals. This is key, especially these days. No one wants to feel like a faceless, nameless pawn in some big game of business. Allow your team members to express individuality and they will be much happier at work. One tip shared in the article is allowing them to collect and display aspirational items, like brochures for a dream vacation or photos of their dream car. These things actually enhance motivation. Third, Encourage teamwork. No matter what the environment or task is, there's probably an opportunity to work as a group to solve problems. Look for these opportunities. Teamwork keeps people focused and responsive as well as accountable. Teamwork often builds trust. And don't underestimate the impact of healthy competition, too. The final chip in our game of Motivation Connect 4 is my favorite. Knock out boredom. Boredom reduces motivation and, more importantly, productivity. Avoid day-after-day routines and allow employees to be inventive and use their imagination. Encourage brainstorming. A quick tip is to work in more short breaks throughout the day and encourage employee interaction. Lastly, don't leave the same repetitive tasks to the same people every time. It's easy to fall into this trap, but it's certainly not beneficial to that person or the team. Now that we're all motivated to motivate, let's turn our energy to addressing perennial problem children with Darwin Perennial's Carl Botchke. 
It's my pleasure to welcome Carl Botchke to STEM. Carl's been a horticultural professional since graduating from Michigan State University in commercial floriculture in 1977. He launched his horticultural career working for his family's greenhouse and garden center in Michigan and advanced to managing annual and perennial production for large growers in Washington State. He became an expert in clean stock management, propagation, and offshore production during his 10 years at Geranium Breeder Ogilvy Limited. And he's currently applying those skills with Darwin Perennials, a division of Ball Horticultural Company where he serves as Global Product Development Manager, working with perennial breeders worldwide to bring innovation and solutions to the rapidly growing perennial market. Carl, welcome to STEM. Well, thanks, Bill. It's sure great to be here. So I've already told uh, the listeners a little bit about about you. You started in a family greenhouse. Um, you know, you you graduated from the Hort Powerhouse, Michigan State. Uh, you've had experience in the business side of the industry, products, breeding, domestic, and offshore. You really have a range of industry knowledge over over many years. So first off, can you tell us a little bit about your role with Darwin and perhaps one or two reasons you're excited about the current perennials market, and then we can talk about the future outlook a little bit later. Sure. Well, thanks. Um, my role with Darwin Perennials is I'm the global product development manager, which means that I'm in the great position of being able to work with growers both in the U.S. and Europe, um, looking at what their needs are in the perennial market, and then take that information back to our breeders in the U.S. and in Europe primarily, and try to uh, connect the dots, really um, get the breeders to work on solutions for the growers and then uh, put those through an extensive trialing system and then bring them to market. In terms of what's exciting, I think, in the perennial world, um, with all this new product coming out, really is making lots of new opportunities and the perennial market is growing. It's very actively growing. So uh, to me, I think uh, those two things coming together are pretty exciting. Oh, and that, and that I, I would agree. The perennial market is, is wide open right now from a, from a demand perspective from consumers and growers. Um, so I definitely think you guys are in a really good position and connecting the dots between the needs of growers and, and what the breeders are working on is certainly a key piece of the puzzle. So you kind of touched on it there, but you're very much a perennial globe trotter, and you see a lot of different angles related to perennial production and innovation, and that's really why I, I really was excited to have you on this podcast. So what are you, what are you seeing and hearing out there? I'm going to leave this wide open because, to be honest, I'm really kind of selfishly interested in your answer. Sure, sure. Thank you. Well, you know, one thing that in in kind of my opening statement that I neglected to mention is there's a, a very important element to this whole piece of the puzzle, and that's that's clearly the consumer. And uh, what I'm seeing happening in the perennial world is that breeders um, are hearing that the consumers are looking for plants that do come back in the landscape that uh, give them a lot of options in their various reasons but are easy to grow and that 
basically behave like annuals. You know, that's sort of in all the consumer surveys that we've seen and we've conducted, they say, well, I want, I want this plant that's going to come back every year, but I don't want it to flower for, you know, three or four weeks. I want it to flower all season long. And, and we're really getting closer and closer to that. We've got a lot of really amazing perennial products that start to look more like annuals. And, um, and then I think in addition to that, Growers are really learning that they're able to schedule perennials, particularly the the new varieties that breeders are bringing to market, so that they can fill those voids in their uh, offerings. And particularly when we look at, you know, during the summer, a lot of times when I'm doing my garden center visits, I don't see a lot of color on the perennial tables because either it's leftover material that has just sort of hung on from spring and they've been cut back and people are trying to sell them, you know, just on a tag and a promise, or um, the growers don't really know what they can schedule, how they can schedule it for that period. And, you know, we're, we're very excited about the opportunities that new varieties are presenting themselves in that area. Well, and when you talk about needing the fresh, fresh items at the different seasons, I think that, um, you know, for, for years when I talked to Garden Center, they, they've mentioned, you know, boy, we're not really seeing the, the traffic in the middle of the summer like we'd like to. And, I, and part of that was, just like you said, it was the leftovers were out on the table. And so I think that having, you know, new breeding, new products being introduced to hit these different seasons and the, and the production regimes behind it is going to be really critical to offering that that fresh product in different seasons that is going to get the consumers coming back in over um, absolutely so you know part of part of this is the the new breeding and the new products coming to market so you know what about some of your favorite uh new products coming to market why you know why are you excited why should growers be excited and and what should the retailers uh expect well i think you know there there's a lot of really cool new stuff coming down the pipeline and as perennial product development people, perennial breeders and and suppliers into the market, we've sort of um, taken a a new look and maybe even a fresh look at what truly is a perennial because, um, you know, if you go into the deep south, many of the things that uh, those of us here in Chicagoland or, or in the North U.S. would only consider on the annual table. Um, I was just in Florida last week and they're selling pentas and lantanas as perennials. So, um, you know, we're doing a lot of breeding work in sort of some of these crossover perennial products that might be perennial in the South, things like um, some of the tender salvias. Uh, uh, the salvia category, I think, is really wide open. We're so used to things like Salvia nemorosa and pretensis in the north, and those are sort of the the mainstays of the hardy salvia world. But there's a lot of very beautiful salvia that give extended flowering and color all season. They're you know hummingbird magnets, they're pollinator magnets. Um, Chicago Botanic Gardens is just completing a three-year study on tender salvias and how well they work in northern landscapes. I'm super excited to see that work come out. So that's an area that I think is really exciting for us. Um, A really cool product that 
we've been in development for about five or six years is a summer flowering iris. Now, this isn't the traditional iris uh, sempervirens that we think of uh, zone four. It's flowering in March, April in the south and April, May in the north. This is one that will start blooming in May, June and go all the way until September. So it gives the look of an iris. It won't be hardy, let's say, in Chicagoland. It's really a zone six perennial, but for a lot of the country, it's going to overwinter and, and more importantly, provide a look of an ibis in a time of year when people aren't used to seeing that. So are these long bloom windows, you know, 90 days plus, is this a, is this a focus of, of Darwin's introduction and breeding? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it goes back into that. We want perennials that bloom like annuals. So uh, things like leucanthemum, for instance, it's it's such a common perennial and, and people have used them for, you know, for decades and decades as mainstays in the landscape. But typically they're flowering for, you know, a four week window in the spring. If they're cut back and the season goes long enough, they might get another flush, you know, late summer, something like that. But we're able through our um, our breeding resources to start to develop leucanthemum that are more ever blooming. So they have multiple generations of of buds and blooms on the plant at one time. And. You know, we're seeing now where we can get, you know, 10, even 12 weeks of flowering on a leucanthemum that, you know, we never had that in the past. That's awesome. And when you do, you know, you're right. When you listen to consumer focus groups and they talk about perennials, they really, you know, they, they don't want that one shot in the middle of summer. They're looking for a much longer period of, of garden performance. And I suspect that landscapers are looking for the same the same attributes. I mean fewer fewer uh, times you have to get get into that bed the, the better yeah that's that's exactly right and and of course landscapers are the ultimate tried and true because um, that's the nature of their business and so they're planting the varieties that they planted you know five years ago and 10 years ago and 20 years ago and we're really taking on the responsibility of educating the, the designers the landscape architects and the landscapers that hey there's a lot of new things that you can put into these um, these uh, landscapes that you're servicing, cut down your service windows, give your customers more bloom time and that kind of thing. So it's a, that's, that's another exciting element that uh, we're involved in these days. Cool. Well, you know, I definitely wanted to hit on some of the trends that you're seeing and some, you know, some of the things that you're seeing out in the market right now. Um, but let's switch gears and really get down to our main topic, which, which is perennial problem children. So crops that, that do, you know, represent challenges uh, in production and, and challenges that, that you guys are working so hard to overcome. So can you run through some of the most challenging crops for growers and, um, I guess most importantly, why why they're challenging. Sure. Yeah, I, I put together kind of a, a short list. And, you know, um, one of the beauty, uh, the, the beautiful things about the perennial world is it's extremely diverse. And I think that is 
what is attracting people to perennials. On the other hand, it's also part of the reason why people sort of, um, you know, take a step back and say, no, I, I'm going to maybe stay out of the perennial game because there's so much to learn and, and you know, um, so much diversity that I just don't have enough hours in the day. Um, so I, I'll kind of go through some of the items on my list and, and, and bring up maybe what some of the uh, tripping points that growers can have, and uh, and hopefully this will help some of the people who are listening uh, to the podcast today as they're looking at their programs and so on. And I think the first one that I wanted to mention is one that um, actually uh, it. it New breeding has has helped, but it's also created some challenges for growers, and that's um, the category of Achillea. So Achillea is one of those mainstays in the perennial garden. It's it's been considered kind of an old fashioned plant. It can be used as a cut flower. It's very persistent in the landscape. In some cases, even considered a bit invasive, but it's it's certainly a, a long blooming, very nice perennial. However. One of the things I've noticed as I visit growers around the country is that because of uh, the new breeding, people are still applying some of the old techniques where in the past, Achillean needed to be planted in the late summer, early fall to give the plants enough time to bulk up um, and then provide enough flowers in the spring to be attractive at retail. However, with new genetics out on the marketplace, what I see happening is growers are still following their old schedules, but they're ending up with just way, way too much plant in the container by the time they get to spring and by the time they get to the flowering season. And consequently, um, the things are bursting at the seams, they're impossible to water at retail, and it's really not a good product going out to the consumer. So we've taken the approach with all of our new Achillea, like um, Achillea New Vintage, or we've got a new series called Millie Rock, which is very compact, that uh, the growers should be transplanting a 72-cell liner, maybe even a little larger liner in the spring because they're coming into bloom and ready for market in six to 10 weeks, depending on average day temperatures. So they don't have to grow them for that, you know, three or four month cycle. They can go ahead and plant them in the spring, sell them in the spring and get that turnover. So it, it really reduces their overwintering exposure, but more importantly, they get a lot nicer plant um, ultimately at retail. Um, so the, the second product is an early spring item and it's it's still something that may be a little unfamiliar to people. We've had it on the market for about five years now, and it's a, it's an alyssum, and it's a spring flowering yellow colored alyssum. So this is a very hardy plant, about um, oh zone four hardy. The variety name is called Golden Spring, and it's it's a species called Wolfenianum. So this is an alpine species of, of alyssum, really beautiful kind of uh, uh, small silvery green foliage. And there's a few tricks on this one that um, I want to let the listeners know about. Number one, all these alyssum are in the uh, on, in the brassica family. So these are kind of related to, you know, broccoli and Brussels sprouts and all those kind of things. So um, as we start getting into the flowering window, which is going to traditionally be February, March, in April in, in, in the north, 
they really get hungry. And I've seen crops of alyssum golden spring where the plants look beautiful, but then the center foliage on this container is starting to turn yellow. So um, with what we recommend to growers is at the time you start seeing buds swelling on the plant, go in and apply at least a 200 part per million nitrogen liquid feed. Most growers are in perennials uh, are using some sort of a control release fertilizer. Um, it may either be running out by the time they get to spring or it's just that the plants are so active that, you know, they, they can't keep up in terms of their nitrogen uptake. They, they end up going into nitrogen debt, uh, sacrificing those older leaves. And consequently, it's just not as attractive of a plant at retail as it could be. So um, we, we again, l- like to have growers kind of put that on their schedule, even if they have to go out with a, a portable injector or something like that, get that feed on just as they're coming into bud. And they're going to end up with a much, much nicer plant to take to retail. Um, the other kind of um, tip on that alyssum golden spring is for the growers who are doing their own self prop is to make sure that um, they're they're sticking the cutting deep enough so that there's only about two nodes or so above the soil line and then making sure that they have actively growing side shoots when they pinch. We've seen some cases where if the cuttings were a little bit long and the growers pinch those cuttings uh, very high so that they're leaving, you know, five, six nodes below, they end up having blind shoots and consequently they're not getting branching on those, on those rooted cuttings. We've, we've tried to correct that by having the, the, the correct cutting size coming out of the production farms. But occasionally if a cutting comes in a little bit too long and the grower doesn't stick it deep enough, they can end up with a blind shoot. So we hate to see that. And I think it's pretty easily overcome. Um, Another product that has been extremely exciting in the marketplace is the Armeria dremeria series. And this is kind of a new animal because it's hybrid uh, breeding coming out of Australia. Normally a typical Armeria uh, is going to be either grown from seed. So that propagation is pretty straightforward. And um, there are some other armarias, uh, kind of the, the, the cutting raised sea thrifts, which are, are fairly easy to propagate. The dromaria are also easy to propagate. However, they tend to need a higher amount of uh, rooting hormone than most perennial plants. So we, on a most, most perennial plants like a coreopsis or a salvia, we're going to say between 500 and 1,000 parts per million basal dip of, of IBA. In the case of the dromaria, we found that we really need to go up to about 2,500 parts per million IBA to get consistent and uniform rooting. And when we do that, things are like little soldiers. When we don't, they get really slow and uneven in terms of their rooting. And that's created some headaches for propagators. It's created some headaches for growers. So um, we really want to encourage people to, to use those higher rates and they'll be a lot more effective. Uh, the next product that comes to mind, and, and we get questions on this one every year since we've introduced it, is the interspecific um, digis, digiplexus type digitalis. Uh, our series is called Foxlight. And in the Foxlight series, there's three colors. One of the 
challenges that growers have had is that depending on the time of year that they want to finish them and depending on their growing cycle, they can run into some trouble getting these things into flower. So we've actually created kind of a an entire PDF of the flowering process for the for the digitalis um, uh, foxlight and essentially the the real trick there is for early flowering so the growers who want to force these things in a bloom for let's say an april one or an easter or even a mother's day window it, it can certainly be done but in those cases uh the the fox light digitalis need to be vernalized that's the only way you're really going to force them for early spring so we recommend between 800 and a thousand hours below 50 degrees fahrenheit to make sure that we're getting that full vernalization um then they can be forced under long days, at least 14-hour day length, and come into bloom about 12, 12 uh, weeks after forcing. So we've done that reliably. We've done it multiple years now for, for instance, California spring trials. So we know that that system works. So then um, one of the things we've discovered in, in sort of with some of the failures that let's say our customers have had is that there's a window of time from about early January until about the 1st of March when growers will plant a non-vernalized young, <clears throat> young plant. And then they'll end up with the plant going into almost a biennial mode so then uh, they don't see flowering in, in let's say, May, late May, early June, like they would expect, but they end up seeing flowering in um, August or maybe not even at all that year. So <clears throat> we actually don't recommend any young plants be planted in that sort of darkest, coldest time of the year because the plant gets confused, it sort of starts to shut down, goes into a biennial mode, and then it's really hard to kick it out. So we kind of recommend that either if people are planting a vernalized plug, they can plant it then, but a, a fresh non-vernalized, they should plant no later than about, um, uh, about week 50, and then don't plant again in a non-vernalized plug until you get to about week 10. Um, those are probably two of the main uh, issues. The other one on the on the uh, Foxlight digitalis is they are sensitive to low calcium. So I've seen cases where we've got fairly mature plants just getting into bud and we start seeing the signs of upper leaf curl and and bud abortion from low calcium. So that's a time when you could go in and do a, a calcium nitrate spray of a couple hundred parts per million uh, and also watch the watering because if they're overwatered and waterlogged, that really uh, limits the calcium uptake. Um, a couple other things that I wanted to go through variety-wise. Uh, we one of our most popular products at Darwin Perennials is Echinacea Sombrero, and we've got uh, a very great color range in the Sombreros. It's a, it's a wonderful plant at retail. Sell-through has been very high. Um, but there's a few tricks that I think can help growers be more successful. Um, first of all, we typically recommend that growers wait and plant their Echinacea in the spring. Um, historically, all of these really colorful echinacea uh, grown from TC needed 
to be planted in the summer so they could bulk up and have multiple flower shoots uh, for sale at retail in the spring and summer the next year. However, there was always a lot of winter loss. So growers might end up with a 10, 15, 20% loss over winter. Um, clearly that increases their cost. And then just by nature, the fact that they're growing those things for so many months, they've got that additional cost invested as well. So we've been recommending with sombreros that they be planted in the spring. And one thing with sombrero echinacea, if they're planted even under long days, they will bulk up. But um, the, one of the challenges that growers can have sometimes in the spring is if they're planting their sombreros into, let's say, a, a, a hoop house with minimal heat or cold soil temperatures, they don't get uniform takeoff with the plant. So coupled with that recommendation of planting in the spring, we also recommend that the grower is able to maintain around a 60 degree Fahrenheit soil temperature for the first three weeks or so so that the plants really become well established <clears throat> and what that does is it it encourages rapid root development and it also encourages good rapid lateral shoot development so that they get this nice full bushy plant otherwise we've seen problems where depending on the year you know some years in february and march you know, we get an, a lot of sunlight in the north and the greenhouses warm up. So the soil, so average soil temperature is good and, and, the, and the grower has a, a pretty successful crop. And then the next year, it's a cold, dark January, February, March. Average soil temperatures are low and then they end up having <clears throat> losses and inconsistencies. So that can really end up being a problem on the echinacea. And, and one more thing that I wanted to mention on the sombrero, and I think this is really important, more and more growers are finding that for fall, uh, diversity is good. So they're adding perennials into their fall program, and sombreros are an ideal product for that because, as I had mentioned a little bit earlier, sombreros will bulk up under long days. A lot of um, these hybrid echinaceas, when they're grown under long days, they tend to send up just one flowering shoot and not be very attractive that first summer. So we're seeing growers now planting sombrero echinacea in, uh, let's say, um, late May through the month of June, uh, even up as late as uh, early July. And then they're selling them in the market uh, mid-August, um, really on through till uh, beginning of October. Um, so that works out really well. Um, the next product I wanted to touch on is uh, um, Heliopsis sunstruck. Uh, so Heliopsis helianthoides is the genus and species. And this is one that, um, I, in fact, I visited a grower this summer that says, boy, we love this plant, but we just can't, we can't do it. It just fails us constantly. And, and I ask a little bit more, try to get some detail on how they're managing it. And they were actually following our guidelines from the standpoint of bringing young plants in in uh, in late winter, transplanting them into their gallon containers, and then putting them in their growing houses and so on. But one thing they missed in our recommendations is that this is a long day obligate perennial, and long day obligate to the standpoint that under short days it goes completely dormant. I mean, the leaves fall off, and and you think the plant has died. So 
So when they're bringing young plants in and let's say transplanting those in late January uh, or early February to try to hit a, let's say a mid-April market, um, they've got to grow those those young plants and their finished containers under long days. Um, this will be a problem. It's the same way for the growers who, let's say, want to grow this as an overwintered plant. The plants need to be uh, put in their finished containers early enough in the summer so that they have a chance to bulk up, build a nice root system, and then they're going to go to sleep starting in October after the days get short. So if a grower brings in their young plants, let's say in um, in early September, mid-September, that plant won't have enough time to get established before it goes dormant, and there'll be a lot of losses in the process. So from a standpoint of just light requirements, long day requirements, that's super important on the Heliopsis. Um, the other one that we've seen with the Heliopsis is they can be sensitive uh, to some PGRs and uh, more importantly, sensitive to some fungicides. So we like to uh, have growers be careful when they're using um, fungicides like, like Heritage, for instance. We've had burn and losses using Heritage. So um, I would say steer clear of that one when you're looking at your fungicide use on Heliopsis. Um, talking about lavender for a minute, that's probably the fastest growing perennial category for, for some of the growers, particularly on the West Coast. Lavender is probably uh, their number one skew for many people. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the challenges growers can have with lavender in terms of growing and, and so on and, and how to overcome that. Um, lavender, of course, is, is a plant that's typically pretty high in in essential oils and that's one of the reasons why it's so fragrant and the foliage smells so good but it also creates a challenge in propagation so i like to use the term that lavenders are kind of hydrophobic in propagation they don't like a whole lot of water and what i see some of the more successful growers are either using fog systems where they're not even misting their lavender they're just keeping the humidity high enough um, to keep the plants from drying out or they're using something like a, a tent system over the plant so that again they're not pumping a lot of water into propagation and and um, and managing in that way. Um, the stems on lavender cuttings typically are quite tender and soft. And if the sticking crew is not careful, they can end up breaking that stem. And, and oftentimes when I'm looking at lavender crops and propagation that are not doing well, I can go through and, and find the ones that were broken off just by being a little bit too rough. So pre-dibbling is really important on lavender and just being careful about the sticking and so on. Um, the other thing that we've seen, and, and I've seen this in particular on English lavender, is that some of the varieties, and we see this with our um, lavender super blue, which can be in the north especially, and even through the middle part of the country, flowered all summer long and into fall, that they don't like to go through a cold and a vernalization period. Um, the newer lavenders on the market don't require vernalization to flower, uh, particularly the English lavenders. And when they do go through a cold period, they have a tendency to go into a, a almost dormant phase. So 
they become very silver, the inner nodes become really stacked, and they they essentially shut down. And when they do that, it takes them a long time to come into flower. So for a grower who wants to bring their English lavenders into bloom in March or April, I recommend that they keep them actively growing. So maintain um, average day temperatures above 55, between 55 and 60 degrees. That will keep the plants moving along. They're going to flower because they don't require vernalization to flower. And more importantly, you avoid that dormancy, which can delay flowering by two months even uh, that it really is a a problem if people aren't paying attention to that when they're bringing their lavender into flower um the last product that i wanted to talk about and this it tends to be more of an issue in propagation but i've i've seen it uh, affecting some of the finnish growers as well is perovskia the russian sage and this is a plant that um, has kind of an interesting habit when it's being propagated, and that is it will make a very aggressive callus. It'll make actually quite a large callus. Some growers have confused that with uh, an agrobacterium gall, but um, most of the time it's not agrobacterium, although it, it can be, But uh, so I don't want to suggest that it, it, it can never be this, but more often than not, I see these really extensive callus formations on perovskia, and that's directly related to excess moisture in the propagation media. So if you're propagating your own perovskia, I recommend that use mist cycles that are, you know, kind of frequent light misting so that you're not overwetting that media and then get the plants out of the propagation environment as soon as you're starting to see some reasonable callus tissue on the base, but before it gets excessive. The other thing is, and again, this goes for the people doing their own propagation, start feeding early. I recommend this on most perennials that generally by day seven, you can start adding feed to the um, to the irrigation water and the plants are calloused enough at that point, they can start taking up nutrients for things like salvia nemorosa. It's super critical to start feeding early. Um, those plants will shut down if they're if they're not fertilized early in the cycle. So I recommend that. Uh, and it would go the same way as for the young plants you receive. So if you're receiving um, any perennials, say in a 72 cell from your propagator um, make sure that you're feeding that product in the 72 cell while you're waiting to transplant or make sure that immediately after transplant there's good feed in the media so that they can really uh, jump off to a good start so i think those are some of the some of the highlights i guess bill that i wanted to present today and hopefully be helpful to the listeners Wow, that is a ton of really, really good information. You're like the guidance counselor for perennial problem children. I mean, you covered, you know, some of the the feeding uh, necessities, the timing, what to watch for, even chemicals not to use. Um, and and I love that you covered some like true retail stars already, like the Foxlight, the Sombrero. Obviously, lavenders, huge retail products, but also some of the up-and-comers like the Drumaria and the and the Sunstruck. So, um, really appreciate all of that uh, all of that fantastic information. So, if you had to boil some of these challenges down to maybe I don't know, like your top three or four tips for perennial growers, what would those tips be? 
Well, I think um, if I were to boil down to the kind of the top three tips, um, I, I really think that, um, you know, learn your varieties. I think that's very important. And uh, oftentimes that is something that is overlooked. People tend to stay in their lane and stay in their comfort zone, but there's so much good stuff out there that it's worth learning that can save growers time. It can save them losses. It can uh, increase the shelf life and retailability, but it's going to take some work, bring in trial material, uh, but but really learn your varieties so that you can consistently be successful. A trend that I'm seeing at large growers around the country is they are taking um, more control over their perennial production. And what I mean by that is, you know, traditionally perennials are either grown in, in sort of frost-free uh, or maybe not even frost-free hoop houses in the north where they're under some cover. In the south, they have a tendency to be grown right outdoors. And, and in either case, the grower is at the mercy of what's happening. You know, is this a, an early season? Is it a late season? And consequently, um, um, they can end up with gaps at retail. So more and more growers are managing the young plant longer into the cycle. And by that, I mean, instead of transplanting a, you know, a, a 100 cell liner or a 72 cell liner, which is a pretty small plant, they're either doing their own bump up. So if the grower is not doing their own propagation, they're bumping up into a, a 32 cell or a 21 cell or they're propagating directly into a larger cell. And then they're growing that in a controlled environment. Now, I realize that that may appear to be adding some cost, but if you think about it, if let's say if I'm growing my perennial crop in a 21 cell, um, that tray you know, is about 15 plants per square foot or so. Um, when I'm growing them out of my nursery, um, even pot tight, that's that's four plants per square foot, or if it's spaced, it's about one plant per square foot. So, you know, managing it at that you know, 15 plants per square foot level allows the grower to be in a lot more control of temperature regimes, lighting regimes, pest and disease control, all those kind of things. And then the beauty is you take that 21 cell as the weather starts getting better, pop it up into a gallon container. And these growers are finishing in four or five, six weeks, a perennial that might have in the past taken 10 or 12 weeks or, or maybe even uh, several months if they were doing fall planting. So I see that as a major trend. It allows for um, actually, believe it or not, I think less labor because they're not covering and uncovering the perennials out in the field. Um, they can plant these things on planting lines and the planting lines now are getting so quick and efficient that um, that they're able to, um, to do it actually cheaper, even though they're adding that extra step into the, into the mix. So I think those are probably a couple of things that I think, you know, really our, our new innovations into the market and, and will help people be a lot more successful in their perennial production when it's all said and done. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think that, you know, you referenced earlier the diversity and the tremendous diversity in perennials. So, yeah, definitely learning these new varieties, um, realizing that there's new new genetics coming to market that are there to solve problems. And then, yeah, this more control or longer control. And, you know, I like how you mentioned that that's really, you know, comes down to labor savings and, and efficiency. So, um, obviously, that's on everybody's mind these days. 
So we do need to wrap this up. Um, you know, you've given us so much great information. I feel like we just got started. But if you were to break out your crystal ball and look into the future, um, you know, do you see that this demand, this demanding trend of the market continuing? Uh, the product mix changing. What do you think? You know, with with your perspective in industry history, looking forward, what do you think the perennial market's going to look like in the next five years? Well, I see more of the retail shelf space being utilized by perennials. And for a variety of reasons, we talked about quite a few of those, you know, longer flowering time, um, really more able to handle environmental changes. In other words, you know, if I, if I have uh, perennials that I'm using for decorating in the fall and put them on my patio, they're going to take a frost where some of the annuals that are fall colors like coleus and zinnias and things like that. They're beautiful, but man, the the first cold wind and, and they're done. So I see that happening. Um, the, the, the issue I would say, and one of the biggest draws right now in the perennial plant category is the fact that they are so pollinator friendly and there is a great and, and thankfully great sensitivity in the part of the consumer to the needs of, of maintaining a healthy pollinator population. And, and that's not just bees, it's monarch butterflies, it's hummingbirds. So when we look at the perennial plants that we have available to us now, they're all exceptional pollinators. And I think that's going to drive a lot of perennial sales. And then just the diversity and the beauty of perennials. And, you know, I, um, I grew up on the, uh, on the annual side of the business, probably more than the perennial side, just because there just wasn't that much going on, you know, when I was in the garden center business back in the 1980s and 90s. But what I see now in perennials and the excitement in the, the different species that breeders are bringing to market and and the um, just the innovations coming in perennials I see it increasing interest increasing usability increasing all the great things that that perennials can bring to the the consumer it's funny you mentioned uh, pollinators one of the things I always think about when I when I uh, you know look forward to spring trials each year is the hummingbirds that are all over the foxlight digitalis and the and the bees that are always on that alyssum and the iberus in in the Darwin uh, perennials area I mean it's like never fails those hummingbirds come back every year to check out the digitalis so you know and the cool thing is we see that even here in illinois the salvias and the digitalis are attracting the hummingbirds and uh in the hummingbird moss and so on and you know i, I always think of california as being the hum hummingbird place where i'm used to seeing them but boy they're all over here as well I think we could do a whole episode on perennial pollinators. Um, it's such a huge trend at retail and something that our industry really needs to uh, capitalize on. It's like we have this this amazing, uh, you know, built-in marketing angle uh, where we're actually uh, doing a lot of good for the environment. So um, I'm glad that you brought that up. So, you know, I, I really appreciate all your time, Carl. Um, is there anything that, that you want to bring up before, before we go? And also, you know, if our listeners have any questions, um, for you or, you know, questions about some of these problem children, uh, perennials, uh, what's the best way to get in touch? So if you have any final thoughts and then any, you know, the best way to get in touch with you. Sure. Well, I, 
what I maybe my my parting thoughts would be this that um, I'd encourage uh, our listeners, growers, retailers, to continue to educate yourself yourself and your staff uh, on these latest growing techniques, on the latest varieties. Um, come to events like Darwin Perennial Day this year in in, in 2019. It will be June 19th, so uh, that's that's fairly easy. Six nineteen nineteen. Uh, we always have great speakers. We've got lots of perennial genetics, not just Darwin perennials. You can see um, perennial varieties from lots of different uh, producers like um, Walters Gardens and Doom and Orange and, and uh, Florensis, et cetera. So there's lots to see there. Um, and then uh, visit trial sites. Uh, University of Georgia has a lot of perennials in their trials, uh, Colorado State, Dallas Arboretum, Penn State. So there's lots of places to see perennials. So I think just continuing to educate yourself. In terms of my contact information, um, and uh, I, I probably won't spell out my name here, but you'll have it somewhere on a website, kbotchke at darwinperennials.com. Um, you can send me an email if you have questions. If I don't have the answer, we've got lots of resources within our group. And then I'd encourage uh, any listeners who are interested to go to darwinperennials.com. We've got cultural information on all the Darwin perennial varieties there, propagation, finishing, growing. We've got culture guides. We've got scheduling tools. Um, so there's there's just a lot there. And you know, we're kind of coming into that time of year for people who are perennial growers where they're not quite as busy as they are at other times. So it's a good time to to um, refresh and recharge your knowledge base on perennials right now. Awesome. And I will put links to uh, a lot of those resources as well as some previous STEM episodes um, with Darwin Perennials and uh, Keith Seed uh, Perennial Experts in the show notes. So thanks again, Carl. And to our STEM listeners, the Darwin team really is loaded with knowledgeable perennials experts who can help you deal with these misbehavior misbehaviors that we've talked about and also to uh, help you fill your greenhouse with the top, latest, new genetics and best performers. So be sure to check out the show notes for all of the resources that, that I mentioned and that Carl talked about and all of the information to revolutionize your perennial production. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to STEM, Insider Tips for Greenhouse Pros. I'm Bill Calkins, and you can always reach me by email at bcalkins at ballhort.com. B-C-A-L-K-I-N-S at B-A-L-L-H-O-R-T dot com. Or on Twitter at Bill Calkins. Be sure to follow Ball Seed on LinkedIn for tons of B2B content related to STEM topics, timely technical tips, and more. And check out the show notes for links to even more content related to this episode, including an array of excellent resources from Darwin Perennials. Let's end this episode with a quote about overcoming challenges from former First Lady Michelle Obama. You should never view your challenges as a disadvantage. Instead, it's important for you to understand that your experience facing and overcoming adversity is actually one of your biggest advantages.